Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In our last episode, we explored the importance of immutable truth and discussed what many think is a crazy, immoral assertion that lying is always wrong. Always. Even if, as Kant said, there is a murderer at our door asking the whereabouts of our friend. While there are a number of reasons we could pull out of Kant's thesis in regard to respecting human dignity and autonomy, reason, notions like these, we highlighted two major arguments for truth, which are worth recapping here. First, Kant showed us that justifying a lie for any reason waxes the slippery slope that leads to social disharmony. If we don't uphold reason, if we can compromise on truth, then how can anyone ever trust that they're making rational decisions in any social context? There has to be some foundation of trust and assurance in any given social interaction. How could anyone have any faith whatsoever in the social contract if people can lie for any self-justified reason? Which we know they would readily do if we accepted lying as justifiable. Because everyone's definition of a justified lie will vary, and often self-servingly so. To uphold the potential moral goodness of lies is to foster distrust, disunity, illogic, and moral relativism, not to mention its undermining of human autonomy and dignity. Yet Kant also recognized that there was great intuition about the goodness of telling a lie to the unjust murderer seeking to harm an innocent. We pointed out that Kant constantly caveated his thought experiment by recognizing that he was only offering up the truth to a murderer because he was assuming that a response had to be given, which is absolutely unrealistic. In the real world, silence is always an option. And there are also a couple other options, at least one other option besides silence, which uh, I'll talk about in a future episode. But taking the hardest scenario possible, one in which either truth or lies were required, Kant argued that truth must be given no matter what. In this, Kant differentiated between the action of the murderer and the action of the truth-teller. The truth is not in and of itself evil. It's just a fact of the universe. It's what one does with the truth that creates a problem. For you to tell the truth is for you to live out and offer up the ideal world of unity and trust. For you to tell a lie, even to a murderer, is for you to chip away at a good world through the justification that the brick you're taking out of the wall is less structurally significant than the one that the murderer is taking out. But both are evils, and both contribute to the destruction of the world rather than to its edification. Now Kant made his argument from a non-Christian standpoint, which I think is fantastic, but it's also going to be problematic, I think. In this episode, I'm going to build on Kant's case, and over the next few episodes, we'll be filling in some of the holes that I think exist for him as a secularist. First, for this episode, let's look at what I think is the backbone for Kant's case, and the backbone for the case that I'm going to make against lying today, and kind of build off of as we move forward. When we think of the act of lying, what appears to be the problem is not that lying itself is necessarily bad. I mean, why would a lie be inherently deplorable? If I say that the sky is red when it's in fact blue at this moment, the world doesn't stop spinning, I'm not struck dead, Nobody's harmed. So making a false statement isn't in itself destructive. For Kant, lying was deplorable because of the tears that it made into the fabric of the universe. Tears into the meaning, autonomy, and rationality that Kant thought were 
objective, and immutable values. Little lies might seem small, but little lies are like little termites. They eat through wood. Termites eat through physical wood, whereas lies eat through ideological and eschatological woods. The world would be a rational place if we didn't lie. The world would be a place where autonomy was valued if we didn't lie to each other. The world would fill in the gap. Lies, like termites, eat through wood. They destroy the foundation and the underpinnings of all that's valuable. In a lie, then, the good one says that they seek to accomplish is betrayed by the compromise of the ultimate, the compromise of the world that would be if one didn't contribute to its destruction in the lie. Lying is like trying to repair or hold up the house by taking bites out of the foundation. It's counterproductive. It does the opposite of what one says that they seek to actually do. Rather than uphold morality and value, lies both big and small, end up destroying it, eating away at it. As just the tiniest of examples, let's discuss another common hypothetical that comes up in regard to lying, much more common than the murderer at the door, right? And something that people always bring up when you talk about lying. It's the infamous wife's dress. Whenever the topic of lying comes up, people only half-jokingly declare that lying can clearly be okay, Because if a man's wife asks if she looks fat in a particular dress, when she indeed does appear fat, the husband is pragmatically, if not also morally bound, to affirm her, his wife, with a compliment packaged in a lie. Wouldn't it be mean to tell her that she looked fat? Wouldn't it be unloving? Maybe, but the more I study lying, the less I'm convinced that those things would be mean or unloving. If the husband gives the truth, the wife might have hurt feelings, almost certainly so. I would be hurt if my wife told me that I looked fat, uh, even, even if I know that I do. Now, maybe the wife would resent the husband and she punishes him by giving him the silent treatment or withholding sex or whatever happens, yelling at him. There may certainly be consequences to the husband telling the truth. But notice that these are all the wife's sins. These are all the wife's issues. Sure, the husband suffers for the truth. But it is the wife who is doing wrong relationally. The husband declared the truth, and the wife is choosing a course of wrongful action towards him. Now, This is doubly malicious on the wife's part because she asked a question. Desiring to be told a lie isn't any better than a lie itself. It's an echo chamber problem. It's what we've been talking about all season. It's what propaganda does. It's what Facebook, social media, all that stuff does. It uh, creates an echo chamber and gives you only what you want to hear. Had the husband given in and told a lie, he would have been feeding into the false perception that his wife had uh, as opposed to telling the truth. Now I know, I know, you think I'm crazy. Perhaps if we look at the ideal that lying undermines in the situation, then you can see that a lie is going to carry far worse consequences. Consequences that the husband would actually become responsible for were he to lie. If the husband lies, maybe he buys himself some momentary comfort. But what if his wife gaining weight has been causing him to become sexually less attracted to her? I've had conversations with a number of men throughout the years who have talked about, in private, their 
uh, waning attraction for their wife. But they can't tell her. They don't feel like they can tell her that she's gaining weight. In avoiding the truth, a husband here is going to avoid a conversation that probably needs to be had. Now, he avoids facing the truth that his sexual attraction is waning, and he avoids working through that difficult truth. Working through that on his part and dealing with maybe faulty expectations of his wife or maybe problematic definitions of what we consider beauty or maybe legitimate health problems for his wife there and and probably all of the above you know he probably has faulty expectations uh, for uh, the way that his wife is supposed to look faulty expectations for beauty because of propaganda and media as just one thing um, but then also there are probably health issues for his wife it's probably all of these things wrapped up in it but that conversation needs to be had stuffing all that stuff is going to lead at best to diminished sexual intimacy and frequency and at worst to maybe the husband seeking sexual fulfillment elsewhere in the dissolution of a marriage if the wife is gaining weight the husband's lie may end up endangering her health if a lack of affirmation might actually be what the wife needs in order to recognize that her metabolism and body are changing and she needs to change her lifestyle then a lie is going to avoid confronting the wife with information that she needs to hear, though maybe she doesn't want to. Information that might spur her on to living a more healthy lifestyle, which might end up prolonging her life and her relationship with her husband. It might increase her comfort, might heighten her sex drive and their intimacy. Psychologically or sociologically, treating, uh, treating one's wife as if she can't handle certain true information, that's paternalistic, isn't it? While eating disorders and the likes are always uh, something that we need to consider and, and we need to be gentle about, being told the truth in a loving relationship ought to be a positive relationship-building event. To treat a woman as though she's too frail to handle true information should be something anyone who values the dignity and equality of women, uh, that, that should be a problem for those people who hold to that position. Um, women should be able to, to handle the truth, Right? Yet a lie does all of these things. It, it patronizes them, and it fails to treat them as rational beings. Also, as Kant pointed out, to lie to one's wife about her appearance undermines her autonomy in that she then doesn't have all of the information she needs to make the best rational choice. Choices as simple as what dress to wear tonight to much more weighty choices like how to handle her health or how to work through her marital relationship and sexual attraction. If a wife doesn't know what her life partner thinks and she only has her self-deception to work with, then an honest second opinion on, on her appearance may be what's needed to make the most rational choice on her part. So a lie in this seemingly simple, benign, um, comedic scenario, it might provide a husband and wife with temporary comfort, but there are a whole host of relational and physical, short-term and long-term, small and significant consequences which result from a lie. Now, does that mean that the husband should have no tact if his wife asks him how she looks in a dress, or should he just go around telling his wife every time he thinks she looks fat? No, probably not. The truth is best told in the context of a strong and safe relationship and in ways which seek edification. 
It's not in the purview of this episode to get into all of that. I, as a married man, am still trying to figure out all of these things, uh, relational things, with uh, both my wife and my children. How do you deal with with uh, things and, and sensitivities and emotions? That's challenging. But please just know that it's a straw man if you're going to act like I'm telling you that husbands should just call out their wives for being fat at every chance that they get, or vice versa. So what is the point here? The point is that when we lie for some good we hold in our minds, in the case of the wife's dress, for example, the good of our wife's self-image or the comfort and ease of our relationship, at least short-term anyway, then when we do that, we actually end up only propping up fleeting and secondary things, momentary comfort and self-perception, while simultaneously undermining deep, meaningful relational structures like autonomy, physical well-being, relational intimacy, sexual intimacy, sexual fidelity, trust, and I'm sure a host of other things that I'm missing. A lie seems to work, which is why everyone always brings up the lying to a murderer at the door, a Nazi looking for a Jew, or a wife asking about her dress. Those are all situations where people are like, well, yeah, of course you lie. Now, lies might often be bad, we can admit to that, but there seems to be these clear cases where they just they work. And they do work sometimes in the sense that they do obtain certain results, often results that feel good in the moment. They, lies, definitely obtain something. But that something that they may obtain is always eclipsed by the ideals and values they sacrifice, as we just saw with the wife's dress. What Kant argued for, and what I'm going to continue arguing for in this episode, is that the truth is always better for obtaining the ultimate things, the ultimate values. My hope, though, is that I'll extend Kant's argument here, because I think Kant is missing at least one key aspect in his argument, and that is a grounding for his values. So I'll try to defend my accusation against Kant's lack of grounding over the next few episodes, but in this episode, I want to focus on the positive case for the grounding uh, of value in truth. In this episode, I want to introduce a concept that I think is going to encapsulate in one word what I'm going to explain in the rest of this episode through many words. And this is a concept that I've actually been mulling over for a long time, but I didn't know that there was actually a term for it until just a few months ago when I was reading through Dr. William Witt's work on the atonement of all things. In that work, Witt brought up a term, and I'm probably going to say it wrong because I've only ever seen it written, and I haven't actually heard it other than like there are a million different uh, websites that try to pronounce things for you, but none of them could agree on it either. So anyway, the, the pronunciation I'm going with here is eudaemonism. Now, there seem to be several variations of meaning for this word, uh, you know, all the way back to like Greek thought and stuff. But the way that I'm going to use it and the way that I think um, you know, Witt presented it in the book, the gist of, of the brand that I'm going with is essentially this. Three words. Doing good works. Not, not doing good works. Doing good works. Like, functionally. It actually works to do good. And while I don't know how much of a foundation Kant would have had for thinking this way from a secular position, as a Christian, this type of thinking just makes perfect sense. 
If I believe that a good God created a good world, I'd expect that doing good would produce harmony, shalom, right? He'd make his world to work in line with the good, right? You're going to get better results by doing good. You're going to get functioning relationships, health, everything. Of course, Christians believe we now live in a fallen world, so telling the truth to a murderer at your door looking for your friend or to your wife who may soon become a murderer at your door looking for you if you tell the truth, it's the truth might not always work out well in this fallen world. But truth is not only an integral component of God's good world, it's going to be a functional one too. It produces better results. Now before I move on, I have to caveat this brand of eudaimonism from two other ideas that you might conflate with it, consequentialism and the prosperity gospel. Both of these eudaimonistic counterfeits are anathemas, and I hate them. They produce nothing but rotten fruit, yet they'd be easy to confuse with eudaimonism. First, the prosperity gospel is an idea that says if you follow God, then good blessings will come to you. If you send in $1,000 to the sleazy televangelist, God's going to bless you with a sevenfold bounty. That's not eudaimonism, that's karma. That is guaranteeing that God is going to give you something in return for your actions. Eudaimonism doesn't say that at all, right? Because in the prosperity gospel, uh, me sending in money has nothing to do with me getting money back. Like, there, there's no correl- uh, causation, correlation, uh, mechanism. Like, it just doesn't make sense. So eudaimonism doesn't say that. Rather, what eudaimonism says is that the world functions in a particular way so that if you do something like say nice things to and love an enemy, that is going to foster better relationships and less violence than if you up the ante through harsh words and violent confrontation. Because of the way we emotional creatures, we humans, were created to be, interacting with a human in a loving manner is going to tend to produce better results in God's good world than if you use violence and harsh words. There's, there's correlation causation there that like they work together. Um, it's not like the sending in a thousand dollars and miraculously getting 7,000 back. Again, eudaimonism versus karma there. Now the second notion that people conflate with eudaimonism is consequentialism. Consequentialism says that something is good because it produces good results. So if something ends up working, then it's christened as good. This is just the ends justifying the means, and that's not how eudaimonism works. Eudaimonism would say that when something is good, it tends to work. On consequentialism, however, the outcome is objective, and what is good is subject to change. The results are determined before the good, so that the good can then be determined. On eudaimonism, the good is always going to be the objective. Now, both of these bastardizations, consequentialism and the prosperity gospel, pivot on the definition of the notion of what works. Most of the time, people are going to define what works as either a will to power or a will to pleasure. And honestly, these two things really go hand in hand and have all sorts of manifestations, right? Political or social status can help one to grow rich, which in turn helps one to maximize pleasure and control. Likewise, becoming wealthy can help one to have more control over life and probably become more politically influential. 
goes both ways. Consequentialism, then, scoffs at the idea that something like never lying actually works, because works is going to be defined as power or pleasure. It was in 2016 that I realized this is exactly the struggle I was having with my Christian community. My white evangelical community determined that good was that which could secure them political power, and what would not have been good a decade before all of a sudden became labeled as good in the twinkling of an eye. And you know what? It worked. The Republican candidate was elected. Evangelicals grasped power. Yet if you look at what's been happening to evangelicalism since then, the decline there went from a graded slope to a precipice. Scandal after scandal, deconstructionist after deconstructionist, and growing cultural animosity towards evangelicals. Animosity, of course, labeled as undue persecution against innocent and righteous lambs, it it hit a fevered pitch. So if four years of power is what defines works, then consequentialists can have their four years. But that's not what you Damonists, it's not what Kant, it's not what I'm talking about when I say, when we say, what works. We're not talking about momentary power or pleasure. We're talking about universals, ideals, values, meaning, a will to meaning. I think the parable, uh, parable of the prodigal son elucidates this idea well. So the prodigal son disrespected his family by asking for his father's inheritance early. He was essentially saying, Hey, Dad, I really want your money now, even though you're not dead. So could you keel over for me and like cough up your money? Because I basically wish you were dead. That's what the son was saying. I wish you were dead. He left home with money in hand, and he lived it up in the city, surrounded by supposed friends. He had money, which gave him control, status, pleasure, uh, social interaction with, with people who pretended to be his friends. But when his money ran out, he ended up returning home, only to find that the father who had raised him, nurtured him, clothed him, and fed him was still there to do it all again, at the lowest point in the son's life, when he didn't deserve it. Now, no matter what the prodigal son did, he had a foundation of meaning. He had a family, or at least his dad, who would always love him and be there for him. The son explored the will to power and the will to pleasure, and it worked for a time, right? He found that his actions to obtain these things, they did work. They seemed to. But then he just as quickly found out that what seems to work to maximize power and pleasure is fleeting, and it's a will to meaning that is truly valuable. A will to meaning is the bedrock upon which true and lasting pleasure and control can be obtained. Another great place you can go to get a glimpse of this concept of a will to meaning is in Viktor Frankl's book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. It's a a really beautiful book that gets inside the heads of um, some Nazi concentration camp survivors. One of Frankl's thoughts from the book reminded me of a crossroads that the prodigal son came to. Frankl wrote about how prisoners would sometimes obtain cigarettes as part of their rations, or for various work details that they had. Of course, cigarettes did one no good. What the prisoners really needed was food, because they were only given something like 10 ounces of bread a day and maybe some broth or something. Cigarettes, then, were for trading. 
you'd trade them to the guards or maybe to other inmates for, uh, for food in order to survive. Frankel said that whenever they saw a man smoking a cigarette, they knew he had less than 48 hours to live. Why? Because he'd given up hope, just as the prodigal son had given up home. Right? He gave up his will to meaning and had embraced the fleeting will to pleasure. For the concentration camp prisoner, that change in wills was deadly. But things didn't turn out quite so bleakly for the prodigal son because he, at the crossroads, chose differently. Luke says that the prodigal son was, quote, longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, end quote. Of course, that's disgusting, to eat the remains of a cop that the pigs had eaten off of and that had been slopped in the mud. That's disgusting. But for a Jew, it would have been infinitely more disgusting considering that an unclean animal, a pig no less, had uh, come in contact with his food. Yet the prodigal son, in his longing to satiate his senses with the basest food that could be imagined, recognized that his life held more meaning than to stoop to satisfy his longing with what would have only been a temporary reprieve. Instead of smoking the cigarette, or eating the defiled cob, the son turned towards home and towards his good father. Now all of this is really just a long way of saying that, while you might think Kant and I are crazy for the positions that we hold on lying, my bet is that if you do think that, you have a difference in what I'd call a skewed definition of the idea of what works. You might think that you define what works as a will to meaning, but in reality, I think you define it as some amalgamation of power and pleasure in the positive, or in the negative sense, the avoidance of pain and discomfort for you or someone else. Telling the truth, doing what's good, it's not worth it because it's going to lead to some, uh, some pain. Now, I'm sure you're chomping at the bit right now for me to try to make my case that never lying actually obtains greater meaning because you don't think that the case can be made, especially when it comes to murderers at your door. And we'll get there, trust me. But before we do, I want to show you a parallel example that I think is going to help us when I try to show you how never lying obtains meaning. I want to look at the instance of martyrdom. And what, if anything, does martyrdom obtain? It doesn't work, right? It's pointless. It ends a life and prevents any more meaning from being created by the martyr. Yet it was an early church father, Tertullian, who declared that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was Telemachus, a martyr, who supposedly brought an end to much of the gladiatorial contests in Rome through his martyrdom in the arena. How is it that martyrs can obtain with their one life the lives and well-being of multitudes for generations to come. The martyr may embrace a refusal to dehumanize their enemies. Maybe they refuse to deny reality. They might refuse to devalue their convictions. They display a bold confidence. There are any number of ways that a martyr, with their spiritual capital, redeems the lives of many. For while this world is being expunged for the martyr, another world is simultaneously being put on display by them for those looking on. And here, right here, is that foundation of wood that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Martyrs display what would be if everyone lived as they did. What the martyr believes works, what is valuable and what is meaningful, is made evident by their courage 
their faithfulness and integrity in facing even the most gruesome of ends. Their means of integrity displays their true and ultimate end embedded in their very own ending. They put on display ultimate, immutable, and pure ideals through their living out of a will to meaning. How could someone with a will to pleasure or a will to power ever compete with eternal and incorruptible things like those put on display by a martyr? The aging and decrepit former philanderer and the weakened and impotent dictator may have had a few good decades, or so it seemed, but by the end of their lives, there's nothing left but rubble. They're pathetic. There's no eternal there. Unlike the martyr, it's the persecutor who displays that their system doesn't work, because the persecutor displays insecurity, hate, violence, dehumanization, and an extreme sensitivity to opposition. Ironically, in trying to erase the meaning of another, the persecutor displays their own meaninglessness and allows the martyr to put their values and meaning on full display. So if we're going to sit here and say that what works is defined as pleasure or power, we completely miss what actually plays out here in the vacuity and hopelessness of a persecutor's actions, or in the deep meaning of the martyr's actions. Okay, let's switch over to the concept of lying now, but keep that martyrdom example, that parallel, in the back of your head. Let's now consider Kant's murderer at the door. What does lying entail? Lying may work, but it also might not, as Kant himself shows. People often act as though lying is going to save your friend, while not lying won't. But that claim is just wholly unsubstantiated. You know, the government says that, that torture works and that and people say that lying works, but I think lying and torture really run in the same vein. Everybody, everybody thinks that they work when they really, if, if they're truthful, which I guess if you're a liar, you probably aren't. But if you're truthful about it, you're going to say, yeah, it, you know, maybe it's 50-50, maybe. But lying just, it doesn't, it's not as effective as people think. Um, so maybe lying works. Let's just assume that maybe it does. But it, it might not. But we know that lying dehumanizes a person. We know that. It reduces autonomy. We know that. It undermines the social contract. We know that. It embraces and displays a world that should not be. We definitely know that one. It justifies the known means by the hypothetical and wildly optimistic ends. I mean, that's the story of, of every election, at least in the United States. You know, every four years, all these promises of how this is the most important election ever. And that's exactly what it's doing. It's saying you can compromise on all of these values that this party is going to uh, be against, you know, for these one or two really big things that are important, right? We need to do it. We're, we're going to do all these wonderful things. We're going to get you this. And rarely, if ever, do they. And for a Christian, of course, there's even more reason not to lie. Lying contradicts the character of God himself. And the embracing of evil displays our lack of faith in God. It shows that we either believe that God is powerless to save us or that God isn't deserving of our faithfulness no matter what. How pathetic must we look to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were facing a fiery furnace and uh, maintained integrity and we, uh, we, we face the truth and resist it. Um, it's just not the way that, that the Bible portrays morality, right? As something that we compromise on. One of my uh, favorite stories that kind of displays this sort of thing is kind of an aside, and we might talk about it in future episodes too, but 
uh, Corey Ten Boom. She's uh, got a famous book called The Hiding Place. And I, I actually she wrote another book. I forget what it's called at this point, but I'll try to put it in the show notes. But I liked it way better than, uh, than The Hiding Place. It was just fantastic. Um, but anyway, Corey Ten Boom was uh, with her family hiding some Jews. And some Nazis came in and were, were asking about them. And her sister, uh, she was against lying ever. And the sister, I forget exactly what happened, but um, I think one of the one of the sisters actually like told the truth, like they're hiding under that table. And when she did, the uh, the other sister or she herself, I don't remember who, but just started cracking up, laughing. You know, that's that's kind of how I react when my parents would get me in trouble. Um, even if I didn't do something, like I'd just start, I'd start laughing, and it wasn't because I was being disrespectful. It's just there's something about being caught, I don't know, it makes you kind of cackle. Or maybe I was meant to be a, an evil villain, I don't know. But anyway, the sister started cackling. And and the Nazis were like, you guys are just making fun of us, right? They told the truth and then started laughing. And the Nazis were like, you, you're just making fun of us. Yeah, yeah you're going to tell us that they're under the table. Okay, we're out of here. And of course, uh, the Ten Booms got caught later, but they didn't get caught at that moment when they, they told the truth. They, uh, they were able to get out of that by the grace of God. Now, does that happen every time? Almost certainly not, right? But our job is to maintain faithfulness and, uh, and not to compromise, and God can save us in situations like that if he so chooses. So as you can see from this story, refusing to lie doesn't always entail its opposite, revealing the full truth in, in a serious fashion. Right, uh, you can also be comedic, uh, and, and we'll also get into deception in future episodes too. Now, something like silence can preserve uh, preserve the good while putting on display a fidelity to human life. So that's another option. The point for now is that refusing to lie works. If by works we mean it creates and embraces a will to meaning, integrity, no matter what works in a eudaimonic fashion, in that it fosters a world that eschatologically will one day be by providing, through our integrity, a foretaste of what would be if only we'd all refuse the evil for the good. People recognize the importance of integrity and lone voices elsewhere. I've seen this, uh, this meme come up quite a lot. Be the matchstick that steps out of the line, you know, and you, you end the fire from spreading. Or be that German citizen who speaks up to the Nazis when all your neighbors are silent, right? when, when uh, evil prevails, when good men do nothing. Be the one person with a camera and a voice when you're witnessing police brutality against someone else, even if it means harm for yourself or threats from the police. Those things might cost you, but if everyone just goes along and embraces evil, what would the world be? You be that one person who stands out and sets the example of what the world would be if everybody did what you did if everybody had integrity. I mean, you don't get to pick and choose your morality, at least from a Christian standpoint. But that begs the question. If you should speak when your neighbor's autonomy is being violated by the Gestapo, shouldn't you speak up when it's being violated by a lie? Now, whether we realize it or not, most Christians are consequentialists who typically have a will to power. I mean, just look at the run Christendom has had in the West. It doesn't take much digging through history or 
even modernity, to see the death grip Christianity has had on the sword. But that will to power only lasts so long, until a death grip turns into death throes. We'll have to see how things play out, but even as a Christian, I, like Kierkegaard, think the demise of Christendom is going to be a good thing in the end. Christendom's will to power is so antithetical to the message of Jesus, I don't know that the world can pick out Christ from much of Western Christianity that embraces Christendom. For the sake of analogy, let's switch over to art and imagine that Christians, because they ought to have the clearest picture of the world as God intended it to be, let's just say that Christians are the best painters, for the sake of analogy. We're the best painters in the world. Imagine that these Christians, these painters, all of a sudden decided to quit painting. They got this bright idea that because they loved art so much, they were actually going to spend their time and resources not painting, but taking over society. But don't worry, the paintings wouldn't stop. These Christian painters were taking over society so that they could force everyone else, all the non-painters, to start painting. Painters love painting so much, they're going to make everyone paint even if that meant that the natural-born and professionally trained artists were no longer painting but politicking, even if they had to coerce and force painting on people, even if the non-painters didn't want it or didn't have the skill set to do it, even if they had to destroy priceless paintings so that there would be more incentive to produce new art, it would all be worth it so that everyone could paint. Can you imagine the resentfulness the world would have towards art and painting and painters? Can you imagine the low quality of art that would be produced in such a society? Now, I'm obviously not talking about Christians painting, real paintings here. I'm speaking of Christians painting with the brush of morality and eschatology. We Christians say that we believe in a good God who created a good, functioning world, so we should have the best vision of, uh, of that world and the best vision by which to depict the ideal through the living out of our lives, through displaying that on the canvas of life. We shouldn't, as Christendom and the will to power have done, quit painting the ideal in an attempt to try to force everyone else to live out the ideal that we proclaim, even though we ourselves refuse to live it out because we're too busy politicking and having a will to power. We don't live out the ideal that we proclaim because we don't really think it works. And the only reason it wouldn't work is either because God doesn't exist as a creator, he doesn't exist as wise, or he doesn't exist as good. If a good, wise, and loving creator, God, exists, then eudaimonism, a life always seeking the good, it works. Our job as Christians, then, is to faithfully represent the world that truly is. The world that would be if everyone could see the painting, if they could see reality clearly. I think this sort of sentiment is offered up in an early Christian document called the Letter to uh, or the epistle to Diognetus. I want to quote it at length here because I think it's a beautiful summation of what I'm trying to convey. The epistle says, quote, What the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body, and Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body. And Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wars against it, though itself suffering no injury, because it is prevented from enjoying pleasures. The world also hates the Christians, 
though in no wise injured, because they abjure pleasures. The soul loves the flesh that hates it, and loves also the members. Christians likewise love those that hate them. The soul is imprisoned in the body, yet keeps together that very body, and Christians are confined in the world as in a prison, and yet they keep together the world. The immortal soul dwells in a mortal tabernacle, and Christians dwell as sojourners in corruptible bodies, looking for an incorruptible dwelling in the heavens. The soul, when but ill provided with food and drink, becomes better. In like manner, the Christians, though subjected day by day to punishment, increase the more in number. God has assigned them this illustrious position, which it were unlawful for them to forsake. End quote. Whoa, that last part. God has assigned them this illustrious position, which it were unlawful for them to forsake. Doesn't that sum up what we've just been saying so well? Christians are the soul of the world, or at least ought to be. We're the painters depicting reality. Contrary to what the will to power or the will to pleasure tells us, the true painter's canvas is often the canvas of suffering, just as we saw with the martyr. Suffering destroys all but the truest of the true, that with ultimate meaning and value. There's a famous story of another artist, in this case, sculpting rather than painting. And that story is of Michelangelo working on the famous statue of David. According to some accounts, Michelangelo said something like, quote, In every block of marble I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine sees it. End quote. Well, Michelangelo probably didn't say that. There's a quote that's more probable which says something similar, though it wasn't specifically about the great statue of David and it wasn't, wasn't quite um, you know, so, so wonderful of a statement, but it's still really good. Uh, quote, The sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the superflu- superfluous material. End quote. Now, whether Michelangelo said either of these statements or not, I think that we can recognize that great artists like Michelangelo have a knack for doing this very sort of thing. They see as existent reality what we, the unartistic, couldn't even imagine in our minds. For the artist, it it already exists. And for us, we can't even picture it. Like, we can't see it until it's actually there before us. Yet after the artist's creation is completed, it looks so easy and we can't imagine that it would have been any other way. Artists give us a vision for what was there all along. We just couldn't see it. So it is with suffering and meaning. Suffering whittles and chips away at our hearts and lives of stone. It forces us to come face to face with the choice of whether we'll seek meaning or not, whether we'll eat the cob the pig stripped clean and smoke the cigarette, or whether we'll return home to our good father. We can choose to embrace and identify with the statue of David that the chisel of suffering is leaving behind and reveal a magnificent sculpture to the world. Or we can identify with the discarded rubble and dust destined for oblivion. Truthfulness, while seemingly inconsequential at times, is a part of the vision for the good, meaningful, valuable, ideal life. Seemingly trivial lies, or lies that actually seem to obtain a greater good, are 
easy to embrace if we fail to understand the foundation of a world that must be built to support the priceless, massive, heavy, yet fragile statue of meaning woven into the fabric of the universe. A statue that suffering and those made to suffer are able to reveal more and more to the world. But such a work can only be created and put on display by those who harbor a foundation, a scaffold of wood. Jesus, on such a scaffold, once held on his back the world that he created with his hands. Christians are invited to erect the same wooden scaffold in the same shape, that of a cross. The servant is not greater than the master. On our scaffolds, in our suffering, through our unwillingness to compromise integrity or to deny meaning, the world will see one even greater than David put on display, David's son, the Christ. The world will see that what would be, once was, and is, and is yet to come. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.